We're back in Zechariah, and I do invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 7, and we'll look at Zechariah 7 and 8, Zechariah 7 and 8, and we do look at a smaller portion typically, but today we're going to cover these two chapters together because the two chapters go together, and so we want to make sure that we get the big picture of what they're saying. The two chapters discuss the worship of God, and they exhort us to ask the question, do we worship God in truth, meaning do we worship God because we love Him, or has it all become ritual and tradition for us? In a way, these two chapters are surprising because God is speaking here to the righteous Israelites who have returned from exile to Judah, and they're seeking to worship God, they're seeking to obey God, And what we see in these two chapters is that God is confronting the Israelites. But when we realize this, this makes this all the more relevant for us. Because this means that we too need to examine every aspect of our worship of God. Is our worship real or is our... We have to consider this question. And you need to repent. Realizing that if you are not a believer, you are not worshiping God And you cannot worship God as an unbeliever. You are essentially worshiping yourself. Now, this message in these two chapters comes two years after the visions that we just discussed. Two years after the eight visions, God gave Zechariah eight visions to call the Israelites to build the temple. The Israelites obey. They immediately restart building the temple. They make significant progress in it. And two years pass, and they're about halfway through building this temple. And by the way, this is the temple that Jesus would walk into. Of course, it would be refurbished and it would be uh, built up more, but this is the temple that Jesus would walk into. And so the people are building the temple and they're obeying God. And because they're obeying God, you would expect Zechariah to encourage them. You would expect him to say to them, keep going, great job, continue building and finish the temple. And maybe he was doing that. But in these two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, he gives them a different message. Clearly a message that they needed to hear for God to sanctify them, but this is not a message that one would expect. He gives them here a warning, a warning about ritualistic worship, about fake worship, which is actually in the end not worship at all. He calls them to examine themselves, to make sure that their worship is not simply religious acts. It's not rote tradition, but that it's coming from their heart, from a heart of love for God, and so that it's true worship. Now, Jesus gives a similar lesson in Luke chapter 18. He talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the temple, and both of them pray to God, and Jesus describes that the Pharisee stood there and he prayed, but Jesus says that he prayed to himself. And as he was praying to himself, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. But I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all of the things that I get. And then there was the tax collector. The tax collector stood to the side. He was even unwilling, Jesus said, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
And Jesus said that it was the tax collector who walked away justified on that day. This is the same message that God is giving to Israel through Zechariah. And this is the same message that applies to us as well. God says in these two chapters, examine your worship. Is it real or is it ritual? And as God discusses this here, God also gives us the result of ritualistic worship, which is punishment. It's separation from God. And God gives us the result of real worship, which is blessing and being in the presence of God. So as Zechariah begins this, he first focuses on ritual worship. And he says, examine yourself to make sure that your worship is not ritualistic worship. When the people saw that the progress of the temple was moving along, that the temple was being built, they were thrilled. The central place of Israelite worship of the true God was being established. So they began to think about the things that they need to do to worship when the temple is established. That's what they're talking about. But as they're thinking about these things, God already sees danger in Israel. That as sinful people, Israel was at the risk of falling back into the traditions that they had been guilty of in the past generations. And so as the people start discussing temple worship, they actually even reveal how this ritualistic attitude had already set root in their hearts. And this is what we begin to see in chapter 7. So look at chapter 7. Let's read a couple of verses and we'll see how they reveal their ritualistic attitude in their discussion. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now it happened that in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. And the town of Bethel sent Sharezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Now, these are godly men. These are men who want to please God. And they ask a question related to worship. And here's the question that they ask in verse 3. And this is the question, actually, that reveals their ritualistic attitude. The question they ask is, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? The question seems genuine, seems honest and sincere, Shall I keep mourning in the fifth month? Now, what is the fifth month? What are they referring to, right? To us, it's just a date. But to the Israelites, the fifth month was significant. This was the month when Jerusalem was destroyed, when Jerusalem fell. So it's, for us, it's like September 11th, right? What is September 11th? It's just a date. But if I ask you, what is September 11th? What is 9-11? All of you are going to know what it is. And all of you are going to have an image of the two airplanes hitting the Twin Towers as the Twin Towers fell in New York City. Well, the Israelites, whenever they thought of the fifth month, they always had the image of the temple burning and the temple crumbling down to the ground in Jerusalem. So that's what the people are mourning. That's what they're wondering about and asking about when they mention the fifth month. So we may say then, well, what's wrong with grieving if that's what they're asking about? What's wrong with them asking, may I grieve or shall I continue to grieve on the fifth month? The truth is it's totally fine to grieve, especially if you're grieving over sin. But the problem here 
was that they thought that by grieving, they could actually win favor with God in some way. It's as if this was some kind of a charm. Grieving was some kind of a charm. If we grieve, God will bless us. And they say here, should I grieve as I have done these many years? We've been fasting for all these years. Is this what we need to keep doing in order for God to keep blessing us? So you already get the sense that their heart is not in this exercise, in this morning. Well, as they ask the question, God, in His grace, gives more than they're even asking for. God goes straight for the heart, and He says, I do not want your ritualistic and your fake worship. Look at verse 5. God says in verse 5, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted, and when you mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, are you not eating for yourselves and are you not drinking for yourselves? As God answers this question, notice that even though only a group of leaders came to ask the question, God is actually addressing all of the people of Israel. He says, speak to all the people of the land. He wants everybody to understand the truth. He wants everybody to know how to worship God. And as God says this, he continues and he says, your fasts were all ritual. They were not done for me. That fifth month that you fasted, he says, was that really for me? And then God adds and he says, you don't need to be modest. I know you fasted on the seventh month as well. And the seventh month was when Gedaliah, one of the governors of Judah, died. And God says, I know that you fasted on the seventh month in exile. So this is a time when they're already suffering, right? And on top of that, they're fasting. But God says, did you really do that for me? And God is not done with this. He then adds and he says, in addition to all of the fasts that you've been doing in the past, I see that you're also doing feasts right now. He says, you're eating and you're drinking. You're eating and you're drinking right now. But are you doing that for me, God says. And the idea here is that whether you mourn or you celebrate, the act in itself does not please God. If you're not doing it for God, from the heart, because you love God, it does not please God. I remember John Piper gave a helpful example of this once. He said, imagine a husband who comes home on Valentine's Day, and he brings flowers to his wife. And his wife says to him, Aw, thank you, you didn't have to do this. And he says to her, It's Valentine's Day. Yes, I did. Right? And then he says, The flowers were $120 because of inflation or something like that. <laughs> well, if he were to say that, what wife would be pleased with receiving those flowers? Wouldn't you say, take your ugly flowers, I don't even like roses. I like daffodils or something. The act of giving those flowers would be despicable. 
The husband didn't do this for her. The husband did it because he had to. He, had, he did it for himself. And that's what God is saying about all of the ritualistic worship. He says, are you doing this for me, for God? Or are you doing this because you have to, because of tradition for yourself? If you're not doing it for God, because you love God, then it's only external. And in that case, you're just like the tombs, the coffins that are cleansed on the outside, but on the inside, they are filled with the stench of death. If you're not doing it for God, then you're depending on your own works for salvation or for sanctification. You're not depending on God. If you're not doing this for God, but you're doing this for yourself, you're putting yourself in the place of God. God expects us to do this for him, to give him worship. But you take the place of God and you bring this worship to yourself. You make yourself the object of worship instead of God. So in that case, ritual worship is nothing short of self-worship. And then to emphasize the seriousness of the sin of ritual worship, God says that this is exactly why Israel went into exile in the first place. Because worship of God became a tradition to them. It became a ritual to them. It was something that they did because they had to, because they were used to doing it, not because they love God. Look at verse 7. God says in verse 7, Are not these the words which Yahweh called out by the hand of the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and at ease along with its cities around it? And the Negev and the Shephelah were inhabited. Ritualism was one of the sins that God sent prophets to Israel to confront Israel about before exile. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God says, I have had enough of your burnt offerings. I take no pleasure in your offerings. Just a few verses down in Isaiah 1.14, God says, My soul hates your new festival moons and your appointed times. You hear this and you ask, but I thought God commanded all of these sacrifices and all of these festivals. Why does God hate them all of a sudden? Well, we get the answer in Isaiah 29.13, where God says, this people draw near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts from me. God wants the heart. And that's why God commanded Israel from the very outset. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's the command that God gave to the Israelites, and that's what he was expecting of them. God does not want tradition. God wants true worship because you love God. And this brings us to the second exhortation that Zechariah gives us. Real worship. Ritual worship versus real worship. And here Zechariah calls us to examine ourselves to make sure that our worship of God is real worship. So if God doesn't accept ritual worship, we can ask, what kind of worship does God accept? And the answer to this is simple. It's worship that you offer to God because you love God. Remember when Jesus was restoring Peter in John chapter 21, 
after Peter rejected Jesus, Jesus asked Peter this one question. He said, Peter, do you love me? That's what God is looking for in worship, love for God from the heart. Well, we can ask what kind of a person loves God and offers real worship to God. What does that person look like? And the answer to this question is also simple, but it's not easy and it's actually not humanly possible. It's a person who is like God. And this means that this can be done in our lives only by the work and the power of God. Zechariah gives a description of a person who gives true worship, and that person, when he describes him, has the character of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. God says that this is what true worship looks like. He says, Judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner or the afflicted, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So what does a person look like who loves God and who offers true worship to God in truth from their heart? Well, this is a person who shows true justice. Just like God, don't show partiality. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 9, there is no partiality with God. This is a person who shows loving kindness, just like God loved us and he transforms us. So are we to love and to serve one another. This is a person who shows compassion. And this word compassion is related to the mother's womb and it shows the immense care that the mother demonstrates towards her child. And so just as God does this towards his own, towards us, so are we to do it towards others. And then on the flip side, this is a person who does not oppress the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, or the afflicted. In other words, do not mistreat those who cannot defend themselves. James said that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. All of this means that God is not simply calling us to do things. God, God is calling us to be like God. And we get this message not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. God is saying here to offer acceptable worship, worship that God will accept, you have to be like God. Now you may say to me, well, can't you do all of these things and still be fake? Where it still doesn't come from your heart. And the answer is, I suppose you can. I suppose you can. And this is why Zechariah continues, and he goes after the heart in verse 10. And he says, do not devise evil in your hearts. God is saying that everything starts from your heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, for the mouth speaks out of that which is the heart. True worship of God starts in the heart. And again, that's why Jesus repeated the greatest commandment and said, just like Deuteronomy 6.4, which we just read, 
What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not just actions, but with the place where all of the actions begin, where they come from, the love of the heart. Worship is sweet to God. It's accepted to God only if it originates in the heart out of love for God. That's the kind of worship that God is looking for from us. Well, after exhorting us to examine our worship, Zechariah then describes the results of ritual worship and the results of real worship. And he begins with ritual worship and he exhorts the Israelites, and by implication he's exhorting us to consider the horrifying results of ritual worship, which is judgment and separation from God. Here's here's the sum of it. God rejects worship that is ritualistic and that comes from ritualistic worshipers. Jesus said that the Pharisee who was praying in the temple, he was praying to himself. He wasn't praying to God. He was praying to himself, and so God refused to hear him. In Isaiah 1.15, God said to the Israelites, When you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. This is how God responds to false worship. And Zechariah gives this very warning of punishment to Israel in his day. He says that the reason that Israel went into exile in the first place was because God warned the people about ritualistic worship, but they refused to hear him, they refused to obey, and so God judged them. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, They refused to give heed and turned a stubborn shoulder and dulled their ears from hearing. And then Zechariah again goes after the heart, and says that that's the core issue here. Verse 12 says, they made their hearts diamond hard. They made their hearts diamond hard. Diamonds may be beautiful, but diamonds are one of the hardest substances out there. And I read in Yale Scientific this week, Yale, a good university, I think, <laughs> journal from Yale, uh, it said that the diamonds are so hard that to cut the diamonds, you have to use special machinery that uses other diamonds to cut through the material of the diamond you're trying to cut. The diamonds are essentially impenetrable. And that's what God is saying here about the hearts of the rebellious Israelites. Their hearts are impenetrable. And because of the hardness of their hearts, God punished the Israelites and sent them into exile. Zechariah said in verse 12, Therefore, great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts. Now, the amazing thing here is that this punishment fell on a people who appeared to be religious. They seemed religious. God poured out his greatest wrath on religious hypocrisy. But God did to them just as they did to God. Verse 13 says that just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen. And that's the scariest reality that people will face. They will cry out to God, but God will not listen because their cries will be fake. 
God will respond to true repentance. He will hear those cries, but God will reject false repentance and he will reject false worship. You guys remember Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And in Hebrews 12, it remembers this account and it says that Esau wept and he pleaded for the blessing with tears. He wanted the blessing and he cried over it but he was rejected. The question is, why was he rejected? Well, because he wanted the prosperity of the blessing. He wanted the comfort of life. He wanted the success that came with that blessing. He wanted the gift, and he wanted nothing to do with the giver. And so Hebrews says that he did not have true repentance, even though he cried for it. And that's what God did with the fake cries of the Israelites. Instead of hearing their cries, God says in verse 13, I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. They thought, the Israelites thought that because they were in Israel, in Jerusalem, offering sacrifices in the temple, they thought that they were near God. But the reality was that while they were physically near, their hearts were far from God. And so God cast them out of the land. And this is the result of fake worship. Rejection by God. And this frightening reality will culminate on the frightening day when fake worshipers will stand before God, the judge, and God will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so as we hear this, the question for us is, how can anyone avoid or escape this judgment of God? And there is only one way. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he said, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2 that when we do repent, God makes us alive together with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ, with God, only if we repent and if we trust in Christ. So Zechariah, he calls us to consider the results of fake worship, separation from God, judgment, and he calls us to repent so that we don't suffer this judgment. But God does not only with in sinlessness, and this is what he does, Zechariah does, by describing the results of true and real worship in chapter 8, in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, Zechariah describes the millennial kingdom, and this will be the blessing of being a real worshiper of God. Now, some might say, I'm not sure I believe in the millennial kingdom. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced of it. Well, this chapter describes this millennial kingdom with a statement that is repeated 10 times. The statement is, thus says Yahweh of hosts, right? It's as if God knew that this would be unbelievable, that this would be incredible. And so Zechariah says, thus says Yahweh of hosts 10 times. In verse two, he says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Verse three, thus says Yahweh. Verse four, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Verse six, verse seven, verse nine, verse 14, verse 19, verse 20, verse 23, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Zechariah is saying, 
I'm not the one coming up with this idea. If you don't believe this, take it up with God. I'm just delivering the message that God has given to me to bring to you. I remember this past summer, I was taking an Uber to the airport, and I started talking to the driver about the Bible. And he said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I I read the Bible too. And then he said, but you have to be careful when you read the Bible. I said, okay. (laughs) He said, sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's not so true. And so I said to him, so how do you know when it's true and when it's not so true? And I kid you not, this was his response. He said, when the words appear in the red, they're true. (laughs) When the words appear in the black, they're not so true. So I'm looking for a Bible that's printed in all red, (laughs) and I want to find the guy. Well, in this case, in Zechariah 8, Zechariah says, thus says Yahweh ten times, so that we wouldn't doubt that what he's saying about the millennial kingdom is God's word, so that we would have this confidence. And as God describes the millennial kingdom, he gives us three perspectives about it. First, he calls us to long for the millennial kingdom, to look forward to it. And he does this by describing the kingdom with five characteristics. He says, first of all, the kingdom will display God's pursuit of his people, God's commitment to his people Israel, and by implication to all those who believe. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came, saying, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion, or Israel, and with great wrath I am jealous for her. When Israel sinned, God refused to be indifferent to Israel's sin. And so he punished Israel because he wanted them to repent. But when God punished Israel, he refused to let the enemies destroy Israel because he wanted to fulfill all of his blessings that he had promised to Israel. God pursued Israel so that he could fill all of the promises that he gave to them and so that he would ultimately dwell with them in the millennial kingdom. So secondly, the kingdom will display God's presence with Israel. Look at verse 3. Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Again, when Israel rebelled, the glory of God departed from Jerusalem. This is in Ezekiel 10. But in the millennial kingdom, God's glory will return to Jerusalem. And with God in Jerusalem, it will be called the city of truth. You can think of Las Vegas, right? The city of gambling. You can think of Washington, D.C., the city of politics. And I think it's fair to say the city of corruption also. In the millennium, Jerusalem will be the city of truth. God's people, believing Israelites and Gentiles, will enjoy this perfect fellowship with God in this millennial kingdom. Thirdly, the kingdom will display God's peace. So God's pursuit of Israel, God's presence with Israel, and God's peace in Israel. Look at verses 4 and 5. Old men... And old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, 
each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Over the past couple of years, actually over the past many years, we've seen an increase in crime in the United States. In July of this this year, there was a 70-year-old woman in San Francisco who was attacked in broad daylight by four attackers. These four attackers were 18, 14, 13, and 11. In June of this year, 24 people were shot in Chicago. Five were killed. One of them was a five-month-old girl. The kingdom will be the exact opposite. Old men, old women will be completely safe outside. Boys and girls will play in the streets outside. For a thousand years, life on this earth will have peace. So fourthly, the kingdom will display God's power. So we have God's pursuit of Israel, God's presence with Israel, God's peace in Israel, and God's power. And the reality is that peace in this world seems impossible to achieve, right? But look at what God says in verse 6. If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant, will it also be too difficult in my sight? The point is simple. Nothing is impossible for God. In Genesis 18, Sarah thought that it was impossible for her to have a child at an old age. But God said to her, in Genesis 18, 14, Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? So she had Isaac. In the millennium, God will demonstrate his power by establishing peace in the world. And then the Messiah will exercise his position as the Prince of Peace. And fifthly, the kingdom will display God's preservation or God's protection of Israel. In verses 7 and 8, God says, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land where the sun rises and from the land where the sun sets. And I will bring them back and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Their God. This will be the millennial kingdom. God's glory will dwell in Jerusalem. Peace will, be, will fill all of the earth. And God's people will fellowship with God in perfection and in sinlessness. So the first perspective God gives us here is that he describes the kingdom. And he says, long for this kingdom. Look forward to this kingdom. Now the second perspective that follows right out of this is... Live in light of the kingdom right now, today, and express this in all areas of your life. Zechariah says to the Israelites, because you're looking forward to the kingdom, be strong in God's work. And for the people of Zechariah, this meant build the temple, continue to build the temple. In verse 9, God says, let your hands be strong. Then if you go to the end of the verse, Let your hands be strong to the end that the temple might be built. Your hope in God about your future should cause you to live your life for God in the present time. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice of a previous generation, 
he said that some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. So heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Well, God says the opposite. God says being heavenly minded means that you must live for God right now, today. In addition to this, God says, be strong in God's grace. So be strong in God's work. Be strong in God's grace. So depend on the grace of God. When the Israelites came back from exile to Judah, life was difficult. There was no money to pay the people. There was no harvest to feed the animals. There was danger. The Samaritans were attacking them. But God says to them, depend on me and I will take care of you. I will bless you. In verse 12, God says, The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. The heavens will give dew. I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. God was saying, depend on my grace, and I will take care of you. Today, right now. God also said, be strong in God's promises. Believe that God will fulfill what he has promised. Look at verses 14 and 15. God said, just as I purposed to bring about evil to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Everything that God promised to Israel in terms of judgment, God did it. Therefore, everything that God has promised to Israel in terms of blessing God will also do that because God is a faithful God. Just think about this. The fact that God punished Israel does not mean that God has rejected Israel. It means that God is keeping his promises to Israel. That's what Zechariah is saying here. Just as God was faithful to punish Israel, so will he be faithful to save and to bless Israel. And in addition to this, God then says to the people, be strong in God's Truth. Be strong in God's truth. Your hope in the future millennial kingdom should affect you now by the way that you live, and you, God is calling us to live according to truth. God says in verse 16, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Gates was the place where they would execute verdicts on various cases, on various judgments. And so God is saying, let that decision be truthful. Let that decision be based on truth, on justice, and not on preference, not on partiality. He's saying here that Jerusalem will be a city of truth in the millennium, but God calls the people to live in truth even before the millennium. Today, live according to truth in Zechariah's time. Then God turns to the heart and he says in verse 17, Let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love false oaths, for all these are what I hate. God again goes after the heart. And here's a question that we can ask ourselves Do you do what God hates? Do you do what God hates? And worse yet, Do you love to do what God hates? God says that he hates lies. God calls us to hate lies. And he calls us to live according to truth, according to the word of God. Because God is the God of truth. So as God shows us the millennial kingdom, 
and the beauty of life with God. He calls Israel, he calls us to live in light of this millennial kingdom right now, even though the kingdom is in the future. So God says, first, long for the kingdom, look forward to it. Secondly, live in light of the kingdom. Finally, God describes the millennial kingdom, and he gives a third perspective, and he says, delight in the future kingdom, because God will turn mourning to joy. Delight in it, because God will turn mourning into joy. We know that song called No More Night, right? No More Night. We sing it at memorial services. You hear it, I'm sure, at funerals. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. As you think about the words of this song, this song captures, just gives us a brief glimpse of what God will do in the millennial kingdom, how he will turn mourning to merriment, suffering to joy in this coming kingdom. And God will do this for he says that he will change all of the fasts to feasts. He says the fast of the fourth month, that's when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. The fast of the fifth month, when Jerusalem fell. The fast of the seventh month, when the governor Gedaliah was killed when he died. And then the fast of the tenth month, when Jerusalem was besieged. God is saying here that all of these fasts, all of this mourning, all of this suffering is going to be turned into joy, into times of joy. And so no more tears, no more pain, no more crying will define and it will describe the millennial kingdom. So God will turn fasting to feasting. Secondly, God will turn all of the enemies to entreaters. Enemies of Israel, enemies of God, to those who seek God. The nations who hated God, who oppressed Israel, they will join Israel and they will worship God. In verse 21, look at what it says. The Gentiles will say, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. People from Paris, people from Los Angeles, People from New York, Las Vegas, people will come to worship God from everywhere. God will achieve that by His power that only God can achieve in turning the hearts of men from loving sin to loving God. And finally, God will transform Israel's humiliation to honor. Israel's humiliation to honor. Look at verse 23. In those days, 10 men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. 10 men, each Jewish person, means that a large number of Gentiles are going to be seeking God, are going to be seeking to worship God. It says here that they will come from every tongue of the nations. And you can think back to Genesis chapter 11 when all of the, there was one tongue and the tongue was confused. So there became many tongues and many nations. And why did this happen? Because the people refused to worship God. 
But now God will unify this and people from every tongue will seek to worship God. There will be a type of reversal happening. All of the tongues, all of the nations will come and they will seek to worship Yahweh. And the Jewish people will enjoy a place of special honor here because they will be known as the people who worship the true God. They will be known as the people of the true God. The Gentiles will say, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Israel will go from being a nation that is despised to being a nation that is desired. Not for what they did, but because they will be known as the people of God and because everyone will flock to worship God. So as God describes this to Zechariah, he calls us all to delight in this future reality of the millennial kingdom. This millennial kingdom will be the result of those who offer real and true worship to God, and these real worshipers of God will enjoy perfect fellowship with God, and they will enjoy perfect fellowship with other believers in the millennial kingdom as well. Well, when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she asked him the question, Do we worship on the mountain of the Samaritans, or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus said to her, True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For it is such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. This is the message of Zechariah. God demands real worship, not ritualistic worship. Those who offer rituals, they'll be punished. They'll be separated from God, for, from God for eternity. Those who offer real worship will fellowship with God in the millennial kingdom and after that for all eternity. This is the kingdom that we're looking forward to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this word, that you, you give us hope, Lord, in times of difficulty in times of darkness in times of trials lord you have given us this promise that we can look forward to this hope that we can cling to and lord that this hope in the future affects our present life as well we thank you for that lord god i do pray that these two chapters that you've revealed to zechariah that they would that penetrate our minds penetrate our hearts that they would transform us that they would cause us to love you more that they would cause us to want to be like you, perfect, or to, to uh, have your character. Lord, we ask that you would continue to sanctify us. Lord, I pray that in all of this, that we would seek your glory, that as we seek you, that we would seek the, that your name, that your son would be glorified. Lord God, we thank you for these promises. We look forward to the day when they are fulfilled so that we can worship you, Lord God, in sinlessness, in perfection, and for all eternity. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.